the underground bunker of the Civitas Studio in Raleigh, North Carolina, it's Civitalk with your hosts, Brooke Medina and Ray Nothstein. We're here to connect culture with civics, making it relevant to your daily life. And dare we say, existence at a time where too many are triggered and offended. So, relax, but buckle up and let's wade into the deep end of what's really happening in your old North State. Welcome to another edition of Civitalk. Brooke Medina here with me today, and our guest, elections analyst Andy Jackson. We've got so much to talk about, obviously. In North Carolina, Republicans overperform the polls overall. Uh, That is maybe not surprising to some listeners. We had uh, what was basically brunted, a blue wave that was predicted by many, did not materialize. And we'll get into all of North Carolina, a little bit of national stuff going on. Brooke, Andy, how's how's it going today? It's going good, good. Glad to be here. Glad the election's behind us. Ha ha. It's yeah. Going on. <laughs> the elections are not behind us, alas. They are not. I know. I so was. I had to look forward to. My favorite meme was the um, electoral college map that my uh, wife sent me yesterday, and it's just like some kid coloring various colors all over the continental United States. Maybe some of you have seen that, but my wife sent that to me last night saying the current electoral map, and it's just a barrage of uh, multicolors all across the the continental U.S. (laughs) Everything still hangs in the balance, but I'm sure by the time listeners hear this, there will be further insight, but just understand that we're operating off of limited information as it pertains to the presidential election at the moment. However, most everything else is pretty uh, right as rain or clear as day for the most part. So that's where we'll camp out most of our time. But um, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, But let's jump on in real quick. And let's start at the national level, though, because um, despite still not knowing who's going to get to 271st or if it's going to be 269 to 269. Is that still a possibility, Andy? I think it still is technically. I, well, it it takes some weirdness, but because the uh, Omaha district in Nebraska went for Biden, it makes uh, it pretty close to impossible. Unless a few states flip in strange ways, which I don't expect that 69, 69 kind of went out because of Omaha. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, that's a relief, but uh, just because I don't really want to draw this out any longer than necessary, but nonetheless, um, let's talk about something that Ray, you pointed out just a little bit ago, and that was the minority voters that uh, came out in favor of the GOP this election. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting. I mean, the Republican Party was much more widely known as the party of civil rights uh, during the Eisenhower Nixon era. So the GOP and Trump himself, I mean, this this really uh, this really is a compliment to Trump and his campaign uh, for all his deficiencies in some ways of his campaign. He picked up the most minority votes of any Republican since Richard Nixon in 1960. So, I mean, uh, that's just to me, an amazing stat. I mean, you go back to uh, eras, uh, you know, I remember 2000, 2004, well, and of course, before that, where Republicans kind of pandered, I I think badly, obviously, but they would pander in a way to minority votes that was just ineffective. And to see Trump just kind of trounce some of those numbers and, and pick up the most votes 
since 1960, a percentage of, of more minority voters. Pretty amazing. I think it, it speaks to the changing demographics in this country, Trump's success, uh, particularly with Hispanic voters in Texas and Florida, where they tend to be a little bit more conservative anyways than maybe Hispanic voters in other parts of the country. But um, it's not just Cubans. And I was watching a little bit of the talking heads on, I think it was Fox News, which, by the way, had really deplorable election coverage. But Fox News, I was watching a little bit of that on election night, and they were talking about his success in Miami-Dade County and other parts of the state with Hispanic voters. And they kept saying, well, those those are Cubans, those are Cubans. But if you dig in a little deeper into the numbers, that's not true. I mean, he did very well, uh, vastly improved his numbers with Puerto Ricans, Guatemalans, Venezuelans, people who, uh, many, many voters who came to Florida and came to the United States to escape socialism. So his 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 um, his message of defeating socialism, whether you chuckle at that or not, uh, was very effective with those voters. Yeah, Andy, yeah. what are um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that this is going to be a, a one-off sort of Trump-generated trend, or do you think this is the way of maybe the GOP going forward? Um, I, I, I think that it's uh, maybe a sign of the latter. It depends. Uh, the Republican Party, and I had a chance to actually talk to a couple of uh, black political activists um, earlier this year, and they pointed this out, is one of the things that the Republican Party needs to do with minority voters is more of a consistent reaching out. And when I say that, I don't mean pandering. You don't make rap videos to think that's going to appeal to black voters, for example. Um, but you you make a constant contact. You, you seek their vote. You speak to them on policy issues. If you do polling and you look at the polls of, for example, black voters, um, the, the where they stand on issues like taxes, like abortion, like a host of other issues is nowhere near their traditional voting propensity. Black uh, voters tend to be about as split as white voters on those issues, um, whereas blacks had been have been traditionally voting about 90% Democratic. So you don't necessarily need to change who you are if you're a Republican candidate, but you do have to make the effort. And if nothing else, uh, President Trump, through his initiatives on, on uh, prison uh, reform, sentencing reform, on things like reaching out for uh, to historically black colleges and universities, um, and really just making the effort to speak to black voters. School choice too. He's been a big champion of school choice. Been. And and so those those are the kind of things that you need to do. Um, you you shouldn't you know just like you you can't count on a certain demographics to vote your way. You can't just dismiss. And so you really do need to make the effort. And if you make the effort, it'll pay off. Yeah. I think that's uh, I think that's a good a good point that and something that the GOP for a long time just kind of focused more on the rural rural areas and I think that there's a lot that conservatism can speak into urban policy and so hopefully this really is a trend and as we know obviously there's uh, the, the urban areas are oftentimes comprised of various demographics that the rural areas aren't so I think that's something interesting to watch and um, yeah. It'll be uh, it'll be good to see if North Carolina GOP trends that way and continues to expand their base. I'm sure I, for one, would love to see them continue to reach out to younger voters, especially. I think it makes Donald Trump very powerful. I mean, it looks like he will not be the next president of the United States, but it gives him added power. I think going forward, he's going to be a force of nature 
within the Republican Party and just politics in general, because, look, he's somebody that can appeal to minority voters that uh, traditional Republicans haven't been able to do. So I think that gives him uh, some more added power. People are going to seek his endorsement. People are, you know, that would happen anyways, but I think it will uh, make it even more aggressive that they will seek out him on the campaign trail. They will seek out him for endorsements. And uh, Andy was exactly right. I mean, when you look at black voters, I don't think you have to necessarily change the messaging. I mean, I, I lived in Mississippi for a long time. A lot of uh, Mississippians are 38% black, and a lot of them are traditionally conservative culturally. So there's just a lot of, there's a big opening there for the Republican Party that they've never quite materialized. Uh, they've never quite actualized. So I think that, you know, there, there, there is room to grow there. And I think it's been kind of this long uphill battle where they've said, well, we're going we're gonna to go all out and try to get the black or African-American vote. And they tend to come up empty uh, for the most part every year. And, you know, there's been advantages in Florida where we saw with the election of Governor DeSantis and the school choice issue, uh, who actually ran against a black Democrat and prevailed. So there's all these there's the, these instances, I think, where you can grab that vote. But uh, Trump is going to be somebody that I think a lot of candidates are going to seek out for, for help in that area. Yeah, and I'd actually like to touch on another area in the state uh, real quick. Um, down in Robeson County, um, this is an area that has long been considered a stronghold for Democrats, uh, and they've been trying to create for a while, a congressional district that is basically centered around Cumberland County and Robeson County, um, because they had traditionally believed that's that would be an advantage to them. But this, and the reason is Robeson County is roughly evenly split between white voters, African American voters, and Native American voters. Um, this year, uh, up and down the ticket, uh, Republic every statewide candidate, the Republican won. Um, which would have been inconceivable even a few years ago. Um, and part of that is, you know, Republicans, perhaps starting with Dan Bishop, who had some success in last year's uh, you know, do-over election, had made some progress in Robeson County. Uh, certainly President, Trump, um, President Trump's pledge to rec federally recognize the Lumbee uh, as an official registered tribe with the United States government helped a lot. But that was an area that Republicans have been working on, particularly President Trump and, and Congressman Bishop. And that has kind of set the stage for uh, progress by other Republicans. So that's another area that shows that if you make the effort, you can be successful. And similarly, Democrats need to start figuring out how they can better reach th these rural voters that they've been struggling with. Um, you know, you can't just depend on all these, uh, you know, computer tech people moving into Raleigh and Charlotte and think that's going to turn North Carolina blue. It's just not enough. Yeah. Yeah. They've taken their base for granted, or at least the minority base, I think. Let's, and, let's just discuss um, real quick. I'm just kind of interested in this realignment, too, of the Republican Party really becoming the party under Trump of the working class. I mean, I know some of you have seen that model that shows the money that flowed into the Biden and Trump campaigns. Um, I, I know there were some rich donors to Trump, obviously, um, you know, Sheldon Adelson, or, or I can't remember his name exactly. I think that's right. Adelson or Andelson um, is a, you know, prominent older uh, GOP donor that's been in politics for a long time. But the GOP now under Trump, is really the party of the working class because all of the, you know, the big tech money was all behind Biden. 
all of the the Silicon Valley money, all of the, basically the international corporate money and, and national corporate money was all behind Biden. You had all the institutions behind Biden. You had, uh, you know, the bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. was all behind the former vice president. To me, it's just kind of fascinating to see the GOP now kind of have a stranglehold on many um, working class uh, voters right now. I mean, they they, they have them uh, because of Trump. I mean, that, to me, that's just kind of phenomenal because, you know, much of the narrative has been so long. We've seen that kind of this realignment going on for a while, but it's really uh, materialized even more under Trump where kind of the, and I'm talking about income levels here, but lower working class and lower middle class um, strongly supporting this president. Yeah, there's this um, book that came out a few years ago. I forget who the author was. Uh, the title of the book is What's the Matter with Kansas? And right. that was a critique from the progressive side, uh, basically saying that uh, working class voters are increasingly supporting Republican candidates. That He was picking on Kansas at the time because he was from Kansas um, and voting against their interest. And for one thing, I think that's a really narrow definition of what your interest is. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of folk, working class folks that really don't want to have government subsidies. They want to have an economic opportunity and that's, you know, how they vote. Plus, you know, when you vote, it's not just voting for like, how can I get more you know, dollars in my pocket? Although that certainly is you know, something to consider, especially considering, you know, those direct things like taxes. But people are voting for what kind of world they want to live in. And a lot of working class voters have traditional values uh, and they want to live in a world that reflects those values. So, uh, you know, they vote accordingly. And increasingly, the Democratic Party has been moving away from those values, embracing this kind of new uh, you know, multifaceted, you know, nation that doesn't fit the model that people have expected to see. And I think that's really alienated a lot of working class voters. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you make a good point there. It's this there's a realignment on the right. And honestly, I think I, I'm not so sure that the economic policies of Trump are necessarily, if you look down into it, particularly helpful for working class Americans, but the messaging around them certainly draws them in. Um, and oftentimes people vote with kind of a fear mindset. And if they're afraid of democratic ultra progressive cultural like uh cultural takeover which kind of the progressives have really emphasized that's what they're hell-bent on doing the political progressives and are just so bent on shoving wokeness down people's throats um people are going to even if they're not completely pro-trump they're going to go that direction of uh the gop uh if for no other reason because they fear that they're their uh, their culture and their lifestyle is under threat. I think a lot of people look at this president and they kind of look down the road and they say, here's a person who's willing to take on China. No politician has really been, no pre politician at the national level that, that they have seen has been willing to take on China. And so I think that there's some drawing aspect to that where they say, you know, this is an important policy that China is not playing fairly on the world stage. They're not playing fairly with the world economy. And so they see that and they kind of emphasize, this is why I'm going to support Trump. You know, this is why I gravitate towards. And I think you see working class people understanding that as well. 
Um, I'd like to jump in and bring this locally for what I think is a race that kind of gives an example of how Democrats might sometimes turn off their traditional constituents. Um, down in Fayetteville, um, uh, I'm looking at the House race 43 here. That race, that district had long been represented by Elmer Floyd, an African-American uh, Democrat. Now, that had been a safe Democratic district during the court-ordered redistricting last year. It changed to where it's only slightly Democrat, Democratic. I think uh, in our uh, Civitas Partisan Index, we rated it as a plus two Democrat district. So they had, you know, probably should win that most of the time. Um, Elmer Floyd, unhappy with the districting, obviously, um, but he ran. But then he was defeated. He was primaried and he lost to Diane Wheatley, who was a professor at uh, Fayetteville State University, much further to the left than Floyd. Floyd ha had a reputation as being a relative moderate, willing to work across the aisle with Republicans on some issues, um, got replaced with Wheatley uh, in the primary. And then in the general election, the Republican, Kimberly Hardy, won in a district that should have been a Democratic district. I'm convinced that if a moderate like Floyd had been on the Democratic ticket, the Democrats would have carried that district. And I think we've probably got a couple of examples of that in some of the suburban areas where Democrats may have won during that kind of blue wave election two years ago, but they weren't able to hold on to those seats because they couldn't appeal to the relative moderate voters uh, in those suburban districts. Yeah, And that seems to be what North Carolina, I mean, North Carolina is still purple, but I was, it seems to me is uh, reasonable enough to kind of just be a little center right when it comes to policy. So even the Democrats, I mean, if they're far left, I, I don't foresee an AOC getting elected here, um, unless maybe she's just just running in, um, in Wake or Mecklenburg. And yeah. so I think that's a, a good point is that North Carolinians on the whole, even if they're left-leaning North Carolinians for the most part, they're, they're a little bit more... Um, centrist, I would guess. Is that a... Yeah, yeah. in the state as a whole. Uh, in, you know, there are places, say, in... Durham. Mecklenburg, Durham, right, Orange, yes. especially, where you can run as... I mean, just this, this is the same way. Republicans can run some really conservative candidates in the foothills, for example, which is a very Republican area. Um, but, you know, Republicans have to realize you can't run this... And, the same thing with Democrats reversed, of course. You can't run the same kind of candidates in the suburbs that you would run in your hardcore base area. And so the party also can't expect people that represent those kind of moderate suburban districts to behave the same way as somebody from your an area that is your political base. Okay, Andy, let me ask you just real quick. I'm getting back to North Carolina. Uh, Trump also underperformed some Republicans here. I mean, I think you had, uh, obviously, uh, Steve Troxler was the top voter, vote getter um, for his position as uh, Secretary of Agriculture. And you had the Del Falwell exceed Trump's votes. Oh, now you're going to make me check that. Trump had about 2.7 uh, million. Troxler definitely exceeded that. Um, and I think Causey, Mike Causey might have come above as well. Uh, Mark Robinson um, came was, came out over Trump, right? Yeah, came out barely over Trump, but over Trump. Uh, and so, the, yeah, and Troxler was the top vote getter in North Carolina. Yes, Causey did come out ahead of Trump as well. So is that is that primarily 
independent, because I know some people who, I know some Republicans in this state and conservatives in this state voted for, uh, you know, the Constitutional Party or the Libertarian uh, challenger in the presidential race, but some of those options weren't as readily available in some of those other races. I mean, is that just that, or is there something else to draw into that? Well, there is this very small population of ticket splitters. There are, there are, believe it or not, I mean, this is what the data indicates here. Uh, there are some Joe Biden, Mark Robinson voters. Not a lot, but enough to help Mark Robinson outperform Biden. He, uh, because uh, Robinson's opponent, Yvonne Lewis Holly, uh, underperformed Biden. It wasn't just a case of, of drop off where fewer people vote. And these candidates, it's the same reason. Um, we we might want to remember that Dan Forrest was the biggest vote getter uh, among yeah. council state candidates in 2016. It didn't help him much this year. Um, but if, if you're blessed with a relatively weak opponent um, and you run a strong campaign, you can outperform uh, you know the people at the top of the ticket. It just was interesting to me that I think, you know, and maybe I was basing this some off the Civitas polls, but you know, there was all this talk about the blue wave, this and that. But it seemed like Republican uh, council of state members, just oh, even the ones that lost, and I expected to lose bigger. Uh, you know, I think the Beth Wood race, uh, state auditor was an example. Uh, the opponent, uh, Anthony Street, I don't remember his last name. Um, Anthony Street is Wayne last Street. Yes, Anthony Wayne Street. But uh, he didn't even lose by a huge significant number. I was expecting a, a wider gap than that. So I think, you know, obviously I think there were people that went in there just kind of Republican, Republican, Republican. You saw that on the other side too, as well. But, um, you know, there were some Republicans on the this council of state races, even the ones that lost that overperformed uh, even than I would have imagined. And I think this is a, a sign. Um, I've heard that Republicans have, have been making a concerted effort to encourage people uh, not to drop off or roll off, as we say, which is where you just come in, you vote for president, maybe governor and senator, U.S. senator, and go home. Um, so I know that's been a message that Republicans have been putting out a lot. Obviously, parties always want people to vote the entire ballot, but it does, you know, from looking at the numbers here, it does appear that, you know, Republicans have done a better job of getting their voters to vote in a lot of these down-ballot races. And that's that effect has probably trickled down and helped you know, all the way down to the state legislative or even the county commissioner level. Yeah, well, okay, yeah. Speaking of um, just how this has helped down the ballot for conservatives, it seems like it certainly has helped on the court front, on the judicial front, right? Yeah, it's uh, so far, I mean, there's one race that is uh, too close to call and probably and, and will be through the... Uh, uh, the, the county canvassing on November 13th. And that's the one at the top there. Uh, Paul Newby, is, the Republican, is ahead of the incumbent uh, Sharon Beasley on the North Carolina Supreme Court, but he's only up by uh, like about 3,700 votes. Uh, and so considering the number of absentee ballots, which we don't know exactly how many more are coming in, and the number of provisional ballots, we can't really figure out who's going to win that one. But other than that, it's, it has been a, you know, it was a good night for Republicans on the judicial front in North Carolina. Yeah. And um, as many of our listeners know, this is, uh, we've talked about the importance of 
in particular, the Supreme Court race. And as of right now, like Andy mentioned, the Chief Justice race, that one is still hanging in the balance as the time of this recording. But um, I believe it's uh, Phil Berger Jr. and Tamara Berenger that have both been elected to the North Carolina Supreme Court. Uh, and prior to that, it was a six Democrat, one conservative or one Republican composition. So that's very important. Yeah. And well, and if you, you know, if Nuvi can pull it out, then you're going to be looking at, at a rel- you'll be looking at a four, three split. And, um, and one of the reasons that's big, of course, is that there are a lot of these election issues. We're talking like voter ID, for example, that, you know, Republicans where, you know, lower courts have enjoined them. And Republicans have not tried to appeal those, just like with the redistricting decisions, because they know that they're facing a 6-1 Democratic court, and it's unlikely that they would be able to prevail uh, in that court. So having a 4-3 um, where you, you, you might be able to rely a little more on precedent in these cases, you know, maybe we could actually start seeing some more cases brought before the North Carolina Supreme Court if you have a, a relatively even split. Uh, politically among the justices. Now, if Newby can't pull it out and you're looking at 5-2, we might be in the same situation where decisions made at the lower court level are pretty much going to stand because they're not going to be appealed. Thank you, Andy. And then, um, Ray, I know we're running out of time over here, but uh, we can pivot back over to National. I know you had mentioned talking or, you know, wondering about Pelosi, where she stands in all of this. Well, there's a lot of bloodletting on the left and with uh, certain Democrats because, look, the Cook political report, and Andy can speak to this. He probably looks at this stuff a little closer than I do, but they were predicting at least like 15 seat pickup in the U.S. House uh, for Democrats and the Senate. They were expecting to take the Senate, and uh, we know it may come down to Georgia now in David Perdue's special election against uh, Ossoff. I don't remember his first name, um, but uh, that's another race that money will just pour into. But, you know, there's talk already, rumblings and mumblings among dissatisfied Democrats in the suburban areas in the U.S. House that just don't feel like Pelosi's getting it done from a leadership perspective. They felt like they were supposed to pick up 15, 20 seats and basically keep the House, uh, you know, out of jeopardy from maybe being picked up in the next midterms with these massive pickups uh, during this election. And I think You know, there's just discussions about this may be the end for Pelosi, but she survived these kind of, whether you want to call it a coup, it's not really a coup, but these kind of inside moves against her before. She's a very skilled tactician, obviously, Uh, even though she kind of suffers when she gets out in front of the media at times. She's a very skilled uh, leader of the House and tactician. And it's just interesting to me how this kind of shakes out because it was supposed to be a big day at the congressional level for Democrats across the country and it, it never materialized. Yeah, the, um, uh, the projections I saw, uh, you know, Cook Report and some of these others, had Democrats gaining uh, 10, 15 seats in, in a house where they already had the majority. Um, there's still a bunch of races, particularly out west, uh, California, of course, uh, where a lot of races haven't been called yet. But so far, it looks Republicans are up by three among races where the winner uh, can be determined based on the current returns. Um, And Republicans are ahead in more of these uh, races that are still too close to call than Democrats. Um, So 
it really was kind of, despite it, the appearance that Joe Biden is probably going to win the presidency, um, you know, otherwise, you know, Democrats are really disappointed with the results that they've had. And, and there might be a cause for people to question the leadership of the party and, you know, the approach that they took to national issues. And uh, maybe they should reassess how much they're spending on these campaigns <laughs> and uh, getting so little to show for it. Um, we, we discussed that earlier, and I just think that bears uh, bears note, noting is just all the money. It's been totally lopsided when it comes to spending both in North Carolina and nationally uh, between Republicans and Democrats. But my oh my, I mean, if I were investing that much money in these campaigns, I'd want a little bit more to show for it. Yeah, 73, was it 73 million was spent in the Kentucky Senate race to try to topple Mitch McConnell? Obviously a wasted effort. I think you had, it was over 40 million, but I may be off. It may be much more than that where they tried to take out Lindsey Graham in uh, South Carolina. So um, just just kind of epic amounts of money that, and, I, and this is, I think, was a problem. I don't know if I mentioned this yet, but you had a lot of members of the media try to take that fundraising and create kind of this blue wave narrative from that. And, and they used the polling to their advantage to, to do this and it never materialized. So I think there's a lot of egg on the face of the media that hasn't uh, been completely fleshed out yet. And I know that uh, there's a lot of voters out there that are probably tuned out of uh, certain polls, uh, not necessarily Civitas polls. We were more accurate than any of the national uh, polling. But uh, I think a lot of people have kind of come to distrust uh, some of these institutions. The media, obviously, again, I mean, they pushed this huge blue wave narrative uh, and said Trump didn't have a chance. And now we're still talking about who's going to win um, on the Thursday after the election. So it's just it's just fascinating because, uh, you know, that we, we talked about this book on the podcast with Joseph Campbell. You know, all these media mea culpas were going to try to understand the electorate better, but they kind of doubled down uh, on yeah. going after this president. And, uh, you know, and I get it. I mean, you know, they, they're upset that he's president and so on and so forth, and they're going to drive him from office. They doubled down on that. And, you know, we're not going to go necessarily talk to his voters and understand what they believe. They don't they don't go and talk to the minority voters that are showing up for his rallies, the Cubans, the Guatemalans, the Venezuelans um, that are showing up in record numbers to his rallies. And they don't try to get in their head and figure out what's going on. They just kind of go with these old narratives and, you know, Trump's bad and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, it just it's just it's just fascinating to me because I think there's a lot of things the media misses. And, you know, they miss it a lot for ideological reasons. But they said they were going to go out and talk to these voters and understand them. And, and they never did that. I think it's the epitome of one lack of inner intellectual curiosity and two humility. They have, uh, like you mentioned, they doubled down, and there was no, there was uh, no, no desire to better understand that part of America, which we are seeing is at least half of the electorate, pretty much. I mean, so to to completely ignore and try to make this monolithic generalization about half of the electorate, um, you know, media that behave that way. I don't see them as long for this earth when it comes to actually being able to, um, being able to influence people and help inform them because people don't want to hear it anymore because they don't trust them. But um, Andy, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, And I'm thinking in particular, 
how so many voters are really concerned about the integrity of elections as we're watching what's going on in places like Philadelphia. Um, and, and uh, you know, what is your confidence of the elections here in North Carolina? Um, in North Carolina, um, well, I'm, I will say in North Carolina, there isn't an election that goes by completely fraud free. Now, the question is, is that is you know, there's always people that vote illegally, that double vote, that vote as felons. Uh, I've documented, you know, uh, several cases of organized attempts uh, at absentee ballot fraud in several counties in North Carolina over the past couple of decades. So uh, there's always some. But the question is, does it rise to the point where it would actually affect the outcome of an election like what we saw with the ninth district two years ago? At the moment, and it's still early, we got to see some of the data. At the moment, it appears that it has not risen to that level this year. So I'm, I'm thinking based on what I've seen so far, we can be pretty confident that the results that come in in North Carolina will be an accurate reflection of the actual voters. Um, I can't vouch for Philadelphia. I, mean, uh, yeah, I don't think anybody can, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, wants to try to. Like walk around money, uh, you know, where people basically go and you know, pay people, give them a little bit of money. Hey, go vote. That sort of thing. Oh. I think walk around money is the that's, term. That's that's legal in some some states. Am I correct, Andy? You, you can. It's supposed to be compensation for transportation to the polls. Um, and so that's but, construed. I'm only mentioning there's there's a book called Bare Knuckles and Back Rooms, and of course I'm sure you've heard of Ed Rollins. He talks yeah. about the walking around money he used in the. The uh, member, Chris, Governor Christine Todd Whitman, and I think it was mm-hmm. a race against Jim Florio, and he got in trouble. And but he talked about it was legal. It was legal, but it was the way that you reported it. And anyways, you know more about that than I do. I think right. I mean, and so I, I I'm familiar with with this stuff, and yeah, I I can't vouch because I I'm not as familiar with Pennsylvania's you know system as I am with North Carolina. But in areas that you know have traditionally had problems, and Philadelphia is right up there at the top of the list with with issues about conducting their elections, surely those areas bear extra scrutiny. So uh, I, I really hope that you know observers, uh, media people are paying some extra attention to to those kind of areas. Well, you guys, uh, by the time this airs, we will hopefully have more clarity on the national election, but we hope that this episode has provided you insights more into just the shifting of the electorate and the voting, uh, the voters that went to the polls this past election day, as well as sort of the lay of the land here in North Carolina and some of these important races. So until then, feel free to always check our website at nccivitas.org. Plenty of content there to uh, keep you informed. So you all have a wonderful week.